Okay, we are uh, going to pick up this morning in Judges 5. There are some handouts on the table. If you don't have one, you can uh, grab one of those. And so we'll be looking at Judges 5, which I have entitled, A Song of Praise to Our God. And uh, if you're familiar with Psalm 40, where it says, He put a new song in my mouth, even a song of praise to our God. It's kind of where I drew that from, even though Psalm 40 doesn't necessarily have any direct connection with uh, Judges 5. I think the, the thrust and the theme of it is there. So if you remember from our study last week, Will took us through the account of Israel's victory over Sisera and the Canaanite army, primarily at the hands of Deborah and Barak, the peoples of Nephtali and Zebulun, and a courageous woman named Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And so in chapter 4, you had the narrative account of what took, took place. And then here in chapter 5, which we'll be focusing on, you have the poetic proclamation of victory regarding that narrative account. Now, hopefully, we recognize that the people I previously mentioned were certainly important in Israel's victory here, but they were important because they were the means by which the Lord, Yahweh, conquered his enemies. So all praise is due to him for this victory. And so let's begin to unpack this song of praise to our God. You'll see there on your outline, which I've taken from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on Judges of how this song of praise is broken up. And we'll get to that as we go along. But I want you to notice here what is stated in verse 1 of chapter 5. The scripture says, Then sang Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam on that day. And then it launches into what this song is. And you notice the last three words there in verse 1. On that day, right? when you look back at chapter 4, verse 23, it says, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. What we should notice about this song here in chapter 5 is that it's an immediate response to the victory that the Lord had just accomplished on Israel's behalf. It was just this spontaneous and instantaneous expression of Deborah and Barak's joy over the Lord's conquering power. They needed to express immediately the praise of Yahweh, the mighty warrior. It was just a, they couldn't wait to get that expression out of them and give glory to God. And when we think about our own lives, we see that desire rise up within us as well, this need to proclaim to others about the mighty works of God. I'm sure you can think of your own life and think about times when the Lord has shown up in a, in a mighty way, and you can't wait to proclaim that to others. You immediately begin thinking, who can I share this with, right? I, I, I've got to tell somebody about this now. You get that desire there. I remember from my own life, the day that Sabrina and I received notice from the government that we had been approved to adopt from Armenia, and there was this instant need to proclaim the greatness of God to others for his mighty works. And so that's what we see here as we, we get into this song. Now, I want to look at the content of this expression that is bursting forth from Deborah and Barak's hearts, and this will be the first point there on your outline the coming of 
the Lord. Okay, so I've got this broken down into the four points that I took from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. And then within that, I don't have these listed out for you, but this song is broken up into nine stanzas. And you can kind of track along and I'll tell you where we are as far as those. So verses two and three would be our first stanza of the song. And what we have in this first stanza is a call for God to be praised. Let me read verses two and three for us that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. We can see from this again, as I mentioned earlier, that although the people offered themselves willingly, it doesn't terminate there, does it? The praise belongs not to the people but to God, who undoubtedly caused them to offer themselves for such a task. And so that's why you have Deborah and Barak thanking the Lord for this, right? For the people offering themselves willingly. That's why it says, bless the Lord at the end there. And then in verse 3, we see here who the intended audience is of this song. This is where it gets really, really interesting, because you really have two audiences in mind, in this song. This is a song undoubtedly for the benefit of the people of God. Okay, this is history. This is Israel's history. They would have been instructed and greatly strengthened by this. But listen, it's also intended for the enemies of Israel. It's a reminder to all kings and princes that Yahweh fights for his people that all praises due to him alone, that all songs are sung to his honor and glory. And this song starts out with this humble recognition that this is Yahweh's doing. Yahweh has worked salvation for his people. So take ear, give ear, O kings, to this proclamation, to this song. And indeed, this is really the song of our lives. This is how the song of our lives in Christ ought to begin for every one of us. This is the way our song of salvation ought to begin, right? We ought to be proclaiming, Yahweh the Lord has done this, right? Salvation is of the Lord. That ought to be our motto. It reminds me of what is said in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. If I can have somebody read that for us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, so that's the testimony of our lives, right? That's the salvation that is wrought for us by God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? We don't take any credit at all for that. This is Yahweh's doing. And this is the song that is being sung by Deborah and Barak here at the beginning. No praise is due to us, all praise is due to him. 
And so as we move on here in verses 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5 make up the second stanza in the song, which really hits on that first point in your outline, the coming of the Lord. So let's read verses 4 and 5 here. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. What verses 4 and 5 portray for us is the Lord coming forth from Sinai, Seir, and the Edom region. And this was important to include for a couple of reasons. First, it would have reminded the Israelites of God's faithfulness in fighting for them in Egypt and bringing them up out of there to Sinai. And his faithfulness in leading them through the region of Edom on their way to the promised land. It really would have strengthened their hearts to remember his past faithfulness then and his present faithfulness in this victory. But equally important, as I mentioned earlier, it was a warning to the enemies of Israel as well. It was a warning that there is no God like our God, that none can stand against the God of Israel. And there's more than likely here a particular reference to the God of Israel defeating the false God of the Canaanites, Baal. If you remember, when I taught a few weeks back, I kind of talked a little bit about Canaanite theology. And if you remember that Baal was the God considered, the God of weather, storm. And he would determine when it would rain and when it would not. And depending on the people's sacrifices to him, he would disperse the rain upon the land and cause the crops to grow. And so the Canaanites were dependent upon him for this. But we see here in verse 4 that it is at the coming of the Lord, the God of Israel, that the clouds dropped water. And I'll mention something else about this verse and its connection to verse 21 when we get there. But we're reminded here that the Lord is the one who controls all things. So again, keep in mind the two audiences in mind here. Encouragement for Israel and a warning to the enemies of Israel. The Lord is the one who controls all things. You see, this was more than Israel defeating Sisera and the Canaanite army. This was Yahweh, the Lord, defeating Baal. And so the nations would do well to take heed to this God of the Israelites. And what's also important here is that the Canaanites would not have been unfamiliar with the God of Israel. This was not some God that they never heard of. If you remember, after God brought Israel across the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptians, Moses sang a song very similar to the one that we see here in Exodus 15. It was a victory song of God saving his people and destroying his enemies. And it's really interesting when you see the parallels between Israel's victory over Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, and then the song that immediately follows that, and then the Israelites' victory over Sisera and the Canaanite army here. But we see here in Exodus 15, I want you to notice this, if I can have somebody read this for us, Exodus 15, verses 13 through 16. This is taken out of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, and watch what's said here. It says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, hangs have seized the inhabitants of 
Philistines. Now, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leader of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have heard. Okay, so you notice there, right? And Moses' proclamation there? All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. We've heard about this God coming and doing what he did to the Egyptian army. Now, undoubtedly, generation after generation, things begin to fade, right? Memories are forgotten and things aren't taken as seriously. And man in his sinful pride rises up again and tries to do foolish things. But they wouldn't have been unfamiliar, totally unfamiliar with, with who this God was. Additionally, if you remember back when Israel was getting ready to cross over into the promised land and Joshua sent the two spies into the land to check things out, what happened there was Rahab hid the spies. You remember that? And notice why she didn't turn these spies in. Okay? Why did she hide them and not turn them Turn them in. And here you have it in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard, okay, so here's, here it is again, right? We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Right? So, so this word is getting out. So this wouldn't have been something that, which makes it even more interesting, right, that they would fight against Israel, knowing this. But like I said, we're, we easily forget these things. Now, Rahab understood who the Lord was, but unfortunately, the kings and princes in Canaan, although most assuredly they had heard of the works of the Lord and perhaps feared him to some degree, in their pride and in their foolishness, they continued to fight against him. And so Deborah and Barak addressed them once again here in Judges 5 in their victory song, like Moses' victory song, to remind them of the power of the Lord, of Yahweh, the one true God. And then moving on to the third stanza, we see in verses 6 through 9, really highlights the coming of the Lord through Deborah. I want you to look with me at verses 6 through 9. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. And travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. What we see in verse 6 and the first half of verse 7 is Israel's fear of the Canaanites. Notice in verse 6 that the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. And this was an order not to be killed or harmed by the enemy. 
And so the fear was so great that they resorted to kind of sneaking around in order not to be seen and to get from place to place. And we see this moving on into verse 7 as well, as people were not even coming out of their homes to enjoy community life. There was such a fear of their oppressors. But then we have this break, right, in this crisis in the middle of verse 7, as Deborah arises, as she said, see her, as a mother in Israel, right? And and this expression really brings forth this affectionate maternal image. And through that image, to help paint the picture of the Lord's protective care over his people in a very difficult and confusing period for them. And then in verse 8, we see that confusion of the people continue, their lack of supply to engage in this upcoming battle. When it says in verse 8 there, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? In other words, we don't have anything to go into war with. But despite this, despite this lack of supply, there's this remnant in Israel who would trust that the Lord would fight for his people. And so Deborah praises the Lord in verse 9 again with very similar words to what we saw back in verse 2. What we have here in verses 6 through 9, the essence of this, we get a picture of a very weak and inadequate people. And notice that it's contrasted with what we saw in verses 4 and 5, a mighty God who fights for his people and comes to them in their distress. All right, so you have those two things kind of seen against each other. The people are weak and inadequate. They don't have the resources to go into battle. Yahweh is coming forth to fight for his people. All right, so that's the, that's the imagery that you have drawn up there. And we see the same type of mentality when we look in the New Testament, specifically Paul addressing the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. If somebody can read that for us. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises dead. Okay, that, that, that's the mentality there, right? God brings these afflictions for what purpose? The end of verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. You say, man, I really gathered up the strength to make it through that trial. Right? Patting ourselves on the back. Yeah, man, I'm really strong. I can get through these things. No. God just said, I'm going to lay you so low so that you know that it's me who carries you in every situation. Okay? Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And this should encourage us as well. Listen, God delights to come to the aid of his weak and inadequate people. That, we, that it might be seen that we are utterly dependent upon him at all times and in all ways, right? And we feel the weight of that more than sometimes, uh, more, more at sometimes than others, but we're not any less dependent on him when we feel things are going really well and so on and so forth. But God brings those things at times into our lives to remind us of our utter dependence upon him. And so that's what Deborah and Barak are trying to bring out here, is that 
yeah, the people of Israel, weak and adequate, lacking supply. You can't go up against this Canaanite army on your own. You will lose. But Yahweh fights for you, and therefore you will win. And so this reality of God showing up to help his people brings us into now the fourth stanza, and it's the last stanza under this first point, and we see this in verses 10 and 11. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. You know, these verses are really a taunt against the enemy. It's a mocking of the enemies of the Lord. It has a tone of derision to it, right? Whereas Deborah and Barak were calling upon the kings and princes to take note of the works of the Lord that we saw in verse 3, they are now calling upon the peoples of the land to take notice of the Lord's work. And so in verse 10, the address most likely is to Canaanite merchants who just continued on in their trade while Israel was in the midst of great turmoil. See, the, these rich merchants were the ones who would ride on the white donkeys rather than on the common gray donkeys to show the richness of, of who they are, to mark out their prosperity. And we also see the peace, peoples of the land walking by the way. And what that's showing us is there's no sense of insecurity for the peoples of Canaan. They weren't like the Israelites who had to secretly take these back roads and go from one place to the other. They could just stroll up and down the public roads confidently and carefree. And so the, the, the call here is for them. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys. This, this is a call for the enemies of Israel. Talk about this amongst yourselves. Talk about the works of Yahweh. Listen to what the Lord has done. Yahweh has suddenly changed their disposition from one of comfort of going to and fro to one of trembling. And in verse 11, the people are encouraged by Deborah and Barak to talk about this as they gather together at the watering places. The watering places would simply be like the community gathering place for the people. Right? All the people would come there and it's like the, like the water cooler at work, that mentality that people have. Right? It's where you get all the latest information on what's going on in the workplace. Right? And so the call here, they really, the, the thrust of it is tell of it. Tell one another. Talk to one another about the mighty righteous acts of Yahweh. Let it sink in. Let it be known to all who this God is who has just defeated your mighty army. That's the thrust that you have here in these verses. And it really echoes, right? As I was reading through this, I was like, man, this sounds a lot like Psalm 2, Right? I mean, you, you hear Psalm 2 all over this. Let's turn there for a second and read that. So I think that Psalm ties in well with what we see here. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then here's the conclusion of this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right? So you really have, like, especially verse, verse 10 there. Like, kings and rulers, listen up. Pay attention to what the Lord has just done. This is who our God is. And this is what he has done for his people. Okay, so that's, that's the first point there where we really see the coming of the Lord broken up into those first four stanzas. Okay, any, any thoughts or comments on that before I move into the uh, second point? Dave. Um, without being careful not to draw a, 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 um, an analogy and kind of a replacement theology between yeah. Israel and America. Right. There's so right. much yeah. that translates into our culture. You right. think about their culture, they're, yeah. they're going back and forth, but yeah. they're oscillating. They don't, they, they, they don't really have a standing in terms of their their understanding of who the Lord is. Yes. It's exactly like the weaknesses we see in the church today. Absolutely. Not, not just the culture, the church. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. it's kind of interesting how that translates to today. Yeah, no and, doubt. You know, what you said was the people are weak and don't have the resources. I mean, right. that's the church, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> no doubt. Good point. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead, Will. Uh, yeah. I was just going to yeah. say, uh, just reading that psalm, Psalm 2, uh, and just going with what you're saying here in the passage, uh, it just causes you to worship, uh, hey, just right. thinking of the mighty power of God, yes. and how he's warning, it's just a way of warning yes. uh, the masses, like, yep. you know, uh, this is what happens when you assume anything over the Lord, uh, That's right. God, God can humble you in this way, so no doubt. it's just great Yeah, no doubt, absolutely. Okay, let's, let's go ahead here and look at uh, point two on your outline, which is the people of the Lord. And we really see that through uh, verse 11d, because you can kind of see how that's broken up there. If it's in your Bible, it might be broken up a little bit. 11d through 23. That's what the second point deals with, the people of the Lord. And verses 11d through 18 makes up the fifth stanza of the song. So let me go ahead and read through that, and then we'll, we'll comment on it. And if I, if I mispronounce any of these names, um, I apologize. They're a little tricky. I would try to use like that Bible is app and listen to other people say it, and then I just say it that way. If they're wrong, then, you know, I'm wrong with them. You know, I'm just like, well, they said it wrong then. I just blame it on them. <laughs> then down to the gates, this is 11D, then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. 
Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Nephtali, too, on the heights of the field. All right, so let's unpack this uh, portion here a little bit. In verse 11d, you see this picture of Israel, which is at that time occupying the hill countries, going down to the cities of the Canaanites to fight. It's really, 11d is really like a summary verse of what is going to be described in the following verses. And so then moving into verse 12, you have this intensity that picks up in the song with the calling forth of two of the main characters in this story. There's the call here for both Deborah and Barak. And listen, the call for them is to arise and fulfill their God-ordained roles in this battle. And then the song moves from these two to the people of Israel, starting in verse 13. And what we have in verses 14, the first half of 15 and verse 18, is praise for the people who engaged in this battle. These are the valiant ones who trusted the Lord and rose to the occasion. And it's interesting here that they are contrasted with those who didn't engage in the battle. And we see that in verse, verses 15b through verse 17. There's this questioning that comes to those who didn't engage. Among the clans, uh, 15b, it says, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of hearts. There was discussion amongst them about this. Should we go into battle, right? What do we do here? And then here's, here's the question. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? To hear the whistling for the flocks? We're just going to stay back and just kind of take care of things while God's calling the Israelites to go out into battle? Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Right? So there's this commendation for those who went out and like this condemnation of those who stayed back, who should have taken up with the people of Israel and marched into battle with them. And so that questioning comes to them, why didn't they engage? And, you know, as I was just thinking about that, I was thinking one theological and practical point that can be drawn out of this is that although Israel's deliverance was undoubtedly a work of the Lord, the Lord called his people to action, to engage in the work, right? Yes, Israel was, uh, or Yahweh was going to conquer but he was going to conquer through his people. That's how the Lord works, right? So we, we don't just sit back and we're just like, hey, the Lord's going to build this kingdom. Let's just watch him. 
right? Well, yeah, let's watch him through the gifts that he's given one another to serve and advance the kingdom of God. Right? There shouldn't have been anybody sitting on the sidelines, so to speak. That's what the questions are coming. Why did you stay with the ships? Why are you among the sheepfolds? Why did you stay beyond the Jordan? Right? It's questioning that's coming to them. What you just said reminded me of a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffner, which says, Silence in the face of evil is evil. It's, is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Mm. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Mm. That is very good. Yeah. So basically what happened was they, they got all hyped up once Deborah came and they were like yeah. ready to go. Yeah. And then once it was time to actually get their hands dirty, yeah. some of them were kind of like, well, maybe I don't want to do this. Is it kind of like that? Yeah, there was this, hey, we're going to go out and fight against the Canaanite army. And so among the clans of Reuben, you see this questioning, should we go, should we not go? Do we run into battle, whatever the case may be? And so there's this... This commendation, like I said, uh, and in verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Nephtali, too, on the heights of the field. So the people knew, and we might die. You know, we're, we're, we're going forth into battle, but Yahweh is with us. We're going to trust that he's going he's to carry the day here. And so you had these other people who just, they, they sat back. They didn't engage in the battle as they, as they ought to. Audrey. As Dave pointed out with so many analogies there between Israel, the Israelites then, and those in the church today, yes. there are so there are many who do go out yeah. and go to the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. But there are many more yeah. who hang back. That's right. Yeah. And, and by the yeah, way, yeah. that name is Naphtali. Naphtali. Okay, good. Hey, I love it. That was it. That was, I got misinformed through Bible as I take no credit. Neftali. Neftali. Thank you. I know because my father was part of, I was always told, part of the tribe. Neftali. Okay, good. All right, good. That's helpful. Hopefully I don't miss it anymore. But you know, that has me Reuben's heart from the beginning because that's why Judah got the blessing. Right, right. Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. You know, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, that, that, to Audrey's point, that's what I was thinking is, you know, like, as I just thought about, as Dave mentioned as well, just the analogy here, right? These things are written for our instruction, as I mentioned in one of the first class, right? I don't want to just read this and, oh, this is good history, right? These things are written for our instruction. We were to learn from this, right? And I think it's a really good challenge for us to ask ourselves, am I engaged in the Lord's work? Am I about the business of building the kingdom of the Lord here and now? Is my life governed by his authority, or am I just governing my own life and mixing in some God here and there? Right? Do I have that mentality that I will engage in the Lord's work when I feel like it, or am I totally submitted all the all the time. Just, Lord, I'm here. Use me for the sake of your name. Now, it's going to look different depending on the gifts that the Lord has given to us, but there shouldn't be a passivity, right? And so the people who didn't engage as they should have are rebuked for their passivity to the Lord's work, but the people who did engage are commended by the Lord for their service to him. So again, it was, it was a good reminder for me of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, right? That yes, 
Yahweh gets all the praise. He's the one who's doing this work, but he's using his people in order to accomplish this work. And the blessing of that, the blessing of being used by the Lord to bring forth his kingdom is really an awesome thing. Nancy? And I think it's that, that springboard is first our trust. Yes, you know, we that's where it begins. Before we can yes. step out. It's the trust that moves us into action, right? Yeah, good point. Good point. Yes. So you think like in our culture, you know, when a soldier goes AWOL, like like how shameful that is. Yeah. You abandoned your yes. You know, troops, and you know, and you just think of like, you know, at first it may seem weird, you know, to hear a passage, you know, about war and that type of thing, but then you think like, well, we sing the Star Spangled Banner at every baseball game. <laughs> you know, the Rockets, red, you know, it's not that weird. Right. You know, um, as a, my dad was super patriotic. As a child, he used to sing us this song about uh, the Americans fighting the British. And, he, and, he, and during the course, he would get really passionate, 18, 14. And so we knew the American history because he sang us this song about <laughs> Colonel Jackson and the mighty Mississippi. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. But yes. also remember, there's no yeah. books. I mean, it was an old yeah. tradition. Yeah, that's it. So it, it had to be a, a song that was sung and continued to be sung. And yep. easily memorized from the way it's set up and sung. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had this song stuck in my head for my father. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that would have been, you know, the same thing. Hopefully that would have happened to Israel as they learned their history. All right, good, good points. All right, let's take a look here. Uh, still under the second point here, verses 19 through 23 is the sixth stanza. And this really deals with the battle itself, and the imagery here is extremely vivid. Let me read verses 19 through 23. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Teanach by the waters of Megiddo. Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meriz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Because they did not come to the help of the Lord to help to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, the first thing that should stick out to us here is in verse 19 where it says, the kings of Canaan got no spoils of silver. And the reason that that's important is because, again, the mindset for the Canaanite army was this was going to be a pretty easy victory for the Canaanites. Remember, they had all the weapons and people that they needed, and Israel, by comparison, had very few people and virtually no weapons. But they did have the one weapon that truly mattered, the Lord God himself. And so in verse 20, the language that is used here, 
was common language of the time to refer to divine intervention happening on behalf of Israel, as it says here, as the stars of heaven are said to be fighting against Sisera. And then in verse 21, there, there's this further amazement, and here is why. The Kishon is normally throughout the year nothing more than a brook. And it would have been no problem at all for the Canaanite army to cross over in order to conquer the Israelites. The Kishon wasn't this really just this torrential river. It was like, how in the world are we going to get across and get to the Israelites? We're just going to be like, oh, we're just gonna, just, our horses are going to run right through this and not even miss, miss a beat. But notice the amazement here in verse 21. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. And this really echoes back to what happened to Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, right? I love what commentator Daniel Block had to say here. He said, suddenly what had previously been an immeasurable advantage becomes a death trap. The heavens opened up, deluging the Jezreel Valley with rain and turning the placid and predictable Kishon into a mighty torrent, softening the ground for, for horses and chariots and sweeping the chariots away. And that's the connection that this verse has with verse 4 that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the song. As the Lord came, the clouds dropped water. There was this unexpected deluge of rain that caused the Kishon to become mighty and defeat the enemies of Israel. Just as the Red Sea opens up and the people of Israel walk through it and then God closes it on Pharaoh and his armies. So again, what looked at first appearance to be a great blessing to the opposing army turned out to be its worst nightmare in how the Lord used it. And so verse 21, that's why verse 21 finishes that way with this conquering statement and renewed trust in the Lord. March on my soul with might. And this is God just showed up, right? It did something awesome, just swept the army away. And then this stanza finishes here with the cursing of Meriz. And from all my studies here, nobody really seems to know exactly who the people of Meriz were. There isn't any other mention of them in scriptures. But what we do know is this. They were expected to come to the help of the Israelites. And they didn't. And therefore, this divine curse is placed Upon them, And that's important. So you have this divine curse placed on Meriz, and it contrasts with the following verse, which is the next point on our outline in the seventh stanza in the song. While Meriz is to be cursed for their failure to come to Israel's aid, Jael is to be blessed for her participation in helping the people of the Lord. Okay, so let's take a look here at verses 24 through 27. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, 
and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Anybody miss that? <laughs> so we see this, this turn now that takes place in the song with the attention being turned away from the two armies fighting to the attention being turned to two people, Jael and Sisera. And Jael is again commended for her action against Sisera. This foreigner is used of the Lord to bring down his enemy. And this description that we see here in verses 25 through 27 is really detailed. And listen, it's meant to be enjoyed by the people of God as we see the climax of Yahweh's victory over the enemy. Right? Like we could read that and be like, wow, that's really graphic. And like, really, well, listen, this was a huge defeat for the Lord or for the people of Israel at the Lord's hand. And it recounts what happened in chapter 4, but it does so in far greater detail. When you go back and you read the account in chapter 4, you kind of get a picture of it. And then here, it's, it's kind of driven down deep into the hearts of the people, or is meant to. Jael is portrayed as honoring Sisera by giving him milk, which is further described in the second half of verse 25 as curds. Even though he simply asks for water, she brings him these curds, and she does so, notice, in a noble's bowl. So everything about it has the picture of the honor of Sisera by Jael. But she is simply setting him up for death. And then in verses 26 and 27, the story really slows down with this obvious delight of the death of the enemy of Israel. And you really see this in verse 26. And this is a, just a classic case of Hebrew parallelism, where the second line reiterates and amplifies the first line. Notice verses 26 and 27 again. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and then watch how it's amplified, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple, right? So you see this, this amplifying of what's taken place. Verse 27, between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead, right? So as Dave said, this was really important because the point of this, as it's being sung, is the aid of memory, right? So this parallelism is meant so that it's just really ingrained in the people's mind. It would have been, you know, for us, when we look at it, we're like, I don't know if I could actually sing this, but for the people of Israel and how their language was set up, right, it was set up in such a way that it would have been memorized fairly easily. And that was the point of it, as Dave, as Dave mentioned. And then moving on into the eighth stanza here, we switch from the victorious tent-dwelling woman to a worried mother trying to figure out why her son has not returned home from war yet. Look at verses 28 through 30. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princes answer, indeed she answers herself. 
Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil? Again, remember, this is a song to be sung by both the Israelites as they recount the mighty works of the Lord, but it's a song that it should that she also should also be sung by kings and princes to remind them that this, in a sense, is what happens when one opposes the Lord. Sisera's mother tries to quiet her anxious heart, as do her counselors, by assuring herself that her, her son, the reason that he's delayed is because he's busy collecting the spoils of war, which includes the enemy's women, which is why you see there a womb or two for every man, and their valuable material possessions. However, we recognize that she waits in vain for her son, the enemy of Yahweh, because he is lying dead in a tent far away. And that's to be sung by the people of God. That is a song that is to be, to be sung. And then finally, this last stanza and the last point on our outline deals with the kingdom of the Lord. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. The first part of verse 31 here is a prayer, and it's a prayer that all the enemies of the Lord will perish, a prayer that there will be no more opposition to the reign of Yahweh. This deals with all the Lord's enemies, certainly the non-Israelite nations that are persecuting them in the land, but it also applies to any within Israel whose behavior continues to be like that of the pagan nations that are surrounding them and showing themselves to be an enemy of the Lord as well. They too will perish because they are seen to be enemies of Yahweh. But there's also here a prayer to those who are covenantally committed to the Lord, those who are said to be his friends. May they be like the sun as it rises in its strength. And then finally in verse 31, after this song was sung, the scripture says there was peace in the land for 40 years, that is for a generation. But it leaves us hanging once again, doesn't it? It didn't say that there was peace in the land forever, as we would hope after such a brilliant display of victory over the enemies of the Lord. It leaves us with this uneasy feeling that something bad is about to happen again, or else it wouldn't just say that there was peace in the land for only 40 years, that it lasted for 40 years and, and, you know, what I think we can draw from this, what I think we can learn from this song is that the Lord is mighty and faithful to act on behalf of his weak, inadequate people. Indeed, the battle belongs to the Lord. But as great as Deborah, Barak, the Israelites who rose up in battle in Jael were, listen, none of them could permanently secure peace in the land for the people. That would come through another ruler, the ruler who would be the answer to the prayer in verse 31, the one who will ultimately destroy the enemies of the Lord, bring his kingdom to consummation and secure permanent rest for his people in the land of the new heavens and new earth. And that one 
is our Lord Jesus Christ. Where am I reading that? Yes. Off my notes. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. It's my exposition of... Right, right. Yes, exactly. This is my interpretation and my exposition of that verse. That's right. Yes. Yeah, let it be known that that's not authoritative in the sense that... Uh, um, but the other thing that I, I, I think is for us is that this song should encourage us that although we are weak and needy, Jesus is not. He will carry us through every battle as we continue to look to him. Indeed, he is our divine warrior who has already conquered our enemy and is waiting for his father to gather all his people to himself before he comes back to get us and defeat forever the last enemy, which is death. And this song should also encourage us to pray fervently and to preach faithfully the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God is still gathering his people, amen? There is still time for the people to repent and believe, but there ought to be a sense of urgency with us, as there was with the Apostle Paul when he told the Corinthians, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. There's an unspeakable glory coming for the people of God and an unspeakable horror for his enemies. And so let us be steadfast, both rejoice in the prospect of the one, but let us be steadfast as well to tremble as we consider the other. And may God use us as he did the faithful Israelites to advance his kingdom for his glory. Amen. Amen. All right, we've got no time for any questions. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired word that you have given us an account of your past dealings and how you have worked throughout history, Lord. Indeed, you are mighty. And Father, we thank you how this story points forward to the one who would come and would defeat the enemies of God and bring his people into an eternal rest. Father, how thankful we are that we who were once enemies have been conquered by our King, have been crucified with Christ and have been raised with him. And we are now called his friends. It's an unbelievable gospel that we have been given. You haven't dealt with us as our sins deserve. We bless and praise your holy name for your kindness to us. And Father, I do pray that we would rejoice over this as we think about the greatness of who you are and your might. But Lord, it would also cause us to tremble as we think about those who are still outside of Christ, who await the same fate, if not in detail, certainly in its end as Sisera. Lord, break our hearts for those who don't know you. And let us do everything we can to proclaim this gospel to them, that they may come and behold the wonder and the greatness of who you are as we have. Please help us to that end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.